Welcome to The Dark Divide, a podcast that takes a seat, dangles its legs over the edge, and stares into the abyss. This is the story of Cody Johnson. The city of Kalispell is named after a Salish word, a language spoken by the Native American tribes of the Flathead Nation in Montana. It translates to flatland above the lake as it's around seven miles from Flathead Lake. On a clear day, all the shades of green and blue melt together, choppy waves kissing the smell of pine in the breeze. The mountains border the distance until they fade away with the sunset, leaving tiny black silhouettes of fishermen and sailboats. It's a place where excitement lies in the details, and simplicity of life is the luxury of choice. Kalispell itself is just shy of 25,000 people, and when you're in the middle of its historic downtown, it still feels close-knit and quaint. And its outskirts hold the best of Montana living, fishing, hunting, hiking. You only have to drive about a half hour until you arrive at Glacier National Park, home to sub-ranges of the Rocky Mountains and vistas of unmapped land that look like a postcard. It's easy to feel something resembling love in this expansive place, to get caught up in the magic of it all. And you tell yourself over and over that soon you'll find your footing again. Soon the ease of the steady pace from before will return. You'll catch your breath and it will all make sense. But how can you spot the lie if everything is just a mirage? How do you give up what you've always wanted when it was never yours to have? And if you decide to finally jump without looking, so sure that they're going to break your fall, what will you do when all you're left with is yourself? When Cody Johnson met Jordan Graham at a church luncheon, the two walked away from the interaction feeling like there was something unbelievably special between them. Cody had told his mother, Sherry, that he'd met the girl of his dreams, and within a short span of dating, he was already saying that he wanted to marry her. Even though they were young, Jordan just 21 and Cody 24, it didn't take long for their plans to become serious, and Sherry wasn't surprised. Cody was her only son. He was kind-hearted, caring, and a hopeless romantic. He'd always wanted the simple pleasures of a wife, a family, a few kids, and a dog in the yard. Jordan shared this vision. From the outside, she and Cody couldn't be any more different on a personality level, but their futures seemed to intersect effortlessly. Cody was a super funny, super social kind of guy. He didn't take life too seriously. He was that friend who could help get your mind off of whatever was bothering you just by being his goofy positive self. He was born in San Jose, California, and moved to Montana with his mother when he was 14, where he thrived. His fun-loving attitude carried on into adulthood. He loved driving fast cars, shooting guns at the range, boating, fishing, and whatever else he and his childhood friends could get up to in their spare time. And Jordan, on the other hand, was extremely introverted and reserved. Where Cody preferred to socialize, Jordan preferred a quieter, more homebody type of life. Her idea of a wild Friday night was a visit to Dairy Queen for an ice cream cone. But for the most part, they found a balance between their two preferences. Cody got Jordan out of her shell and trying new things she never would have before. And Jordan was a good influence on Cody. He started going to church with her more and deepening his relationship with God. When Jordan would babysit for work, 
The warmth that children brought out in her made him so excited at the prospect of settling down and becoming a father. Mutual friends of the couple sometimes considered her a little rigid, almost cold. Cody's friends, in particular, couldn't help but notice that his head-over-heels whirlwind romance seemed mostly one-sided. He wanted to see Jordan as often as possible, but she always had excuses of being too busy. And Jordan's friends noticed that she'd rarely go out on dates with Cody, and when she did, there was always company. They never held hands, kissed, or touched in any way when they were in front of other people. Jordan's best friends, Hannah and Kimberly, knew their friend well enough to have an inkling that maybe she wasn't as physically attracted to Cody as you'd assume someone would be to their partner. And on the other hand, they also knew how important outside appearances were to Jordan. She didn't just talk the talk in their religious community, she walked the walk. Jordan's religious beliefs shaped her values, including a very clear line about what was allowed before marriage and what was allowed after. Jordan didn't believe in premarital sex, and where this might bother some 24-year-old men, Cody appreciated that he'd found himself such a good girl, who reflected a lot of morals that he admired. When Cody told his friends that he was thinking of proposing, they didn't hold back in sharing that maybe not rushing into things was the best route. Multiple times, one of his closest friends, Cameron, gave his opinion on Jordan. They'd known each other since they were teenagers and both worked at Nomad Global Communications. Even as adults, they pretty much did everything together. And Cameron figured that once Cody started dating, that would have gone out the window. But their routine mostly remained untouched. Jordan never made time for Cody, unless it was for appearances' sake, he felt. And he told Cody that it would only be a matter of time before they'd be filing for divorce. But after Cody stormed out of a restaurant during one of his unsolicited advice rants about Jordan, he decided it was best to keep how he felt to himself. And in December 2012, Jordan would tweet a photograph of her ring sharing, he proposed, best early Christmas present ever. Where Cody's friends disapproved, Jordan's friends were both confused and surprised that she'd said yes. But very soon, it became clear that it wasn't spending the rest of her life with Cody that she was excited about, so much as just being engaged itself. She bought stacks of wedding magazines, made Pinterest boards full of decor and mood themes, and watched episodes of Say Yes to the Dress. Jordan was determined to have the most perfect wedding day that she'd been dreaming about since she was a little girl. Jordan even found a website where she could have a custom song made, sending them a bubbly message all about her and Cody's match made in heaven and how it would be the most special gift for their wedding dance. At first, when the writer and singer Elizabeth Shea told her the price, she said she'd have to do a little budgeting and get back to her. But to Elizabeth's surprise, Jordan eventually responded letting her know that the project was a go, not only would Jordan work extra hours at her job to afford the song, but she'd splurge and fly out to the studio in LA to be a part of the recording process. Like everyone else, Elizabeth noticed how quiet and dry Jordan was in person, especially compared to her bubbly emails peppered with exclamation marks and capitals. But nevertheless, she also struck her as over the moon. Jordan lit up describing her relationship with Cody, and as the two of them got to talking, they came up with suitable metaphors for the lyrics. You helped me to climb higher for a better view, and God knew all the plans he had for us, and he brought me to you, and now I can't thank the Lord enough. Everyone has a reason to wake up, you're mine. Everyone has a safe place to fall, and you're mine. The two would be married on June 29, 2013, in a romantic Twilight Garden-themed wedding. 
Jordan had obsessed over every detail, every table placement, every piece of decoration. But instead of excitement, the 22-year-old gave off a hopeless dread. While she put the finishing touches on her makeup, she kept having to stop and wipe away tears. No doubt everyone assumed that she was just overwhelmed with emotion as she walked down the aisle crying, but Jordan's friends knew her better than that. They weren't tears of joy. She was miserable. As Cody recited his vows, Jordan stared down at her feet, moving in tiny shuffles side to side. When it was her turn, she didn't break her glance at the pastor once while repeating her promises. But maybe it was just nerves, because after the ceremony, Jordan seemed to come alive a little more. She laughed and smiled with friends for photographs, dropping in to play host between guests. As her maid of honor, Kimberly gave a touching speech and spoke about how amazing Jordan was, how lucky they both were to have each other. When it came time for their first dance, Jordan held Cody close, running her fingers through his hair and whispering to him while their custom song played. People may not have agreed that they shared a dream relationship, but they definitely got their dream wedding. After the wedding, they spent the night in Big Fork as a mini honeymoon. Cody had worked with one of Jordan's bridesmaids behind the scenes to make sure that it was decked out with flowers as a romantic surprise. But once the weekend was over, and they returned to their new home and their new life together, all that Jordan had left was the actual marriage, which didn't interest her much. I should be happy, but I'm not, she texted Kimberly the next day. I've never cried this much in my entire life. I don't want to live. Jordan told her that she was having a complete meltdown, and she didn't really know what she did all that for, the whole wedding, and after the wedding. It was just… a lot. Knowing her anxieties about intimacy and sex, Kimberly asked if she meant the actual wedding or what happened after, to which Jordan said both. She just wasn't sure if she did the right thing, and she said she preferred to talk about it in person instead of texting. But when they finally spoke, Jordan still didn't get specific. She said they'd had a miserable time after the wedding, that they didn't enjoy their night, and then she sobbed uncontrollably. Kimberly tried consoling her friend, telling her to give it time. It was clear that they still hadn't officially consummated their marriage, and Jordan had been dreading that event every single second since they'd said I do. She kept Kimberly updated, texting her things like, I know he's going to want to do stuff tonight, and I just don't want him to. Another evening, she told her, using the period started tonight's spiel, I freaking hope this works because if I'm forced to do something, I'm going to freak out. It had almost been a week since they'd gotten married. One week since they stood on the altar in front of all their friends and family and swore to love each other until death. And death would come sooner than anyone ever expected. On Monday, July 8th, Cody didn't show up for work. Cameron, of course, noticed right away and texted him throughout the morning. Cody wasn't the no-call, no-show type. He'd never even been late for work once. After a couple hours, around 10.30 a.m., he finally called to see what was going on, but it went straight to voicemail. He asked a few friends if they'd heard from Cody or knew where he was, but nobody else could get a hold of him either. He even called around to local hospitals to see if he'd been admitted. He called the police department to see if there'd been any accidents reported nothing. Finally, around the end of the workday, Jordan called Nomad, asking Cameron if Cody had shown up. Cameron was completely confused. How did Jordan not know where he was? That's when she explained that she hadn't seen him since the night before, when he'd left with a few friends from Washington who were also avid car fanatics. 
Cameron immediately knew there was something wrong with that entire scenario, and he was worried. Cody didn't just skip town with random friends and blow off work. That evening, with him still MIA, everyone gathered at Cody and Jordan's place, trying to think of what could be going on and doing their own investigation, like asking Jordan if she'd checked his Facebook and bank account activity. But Cody had seemingly disappeared, and Jordan wasn't too stressed over his whereabouts, still sticking to her usual plans with friends, like dinner at Dairy Queen. Hannah watched her skip through the parking lot with her ice cream cone in hand like a happy child. Jordan was always in a better mood whenever Cody wasn't around, though. But Cameron was so convinced that something suspicious was going on that he went to their house the next day, and after finding the back door was unlocked, he took a look around. But nothing seemed out of the ordinary. It just didn't make sense. If he had gone on some spontaneous adventure with friends, why was he missing work and not returning anyone's calls? Cody would never make people worry about him this way. After reporting him missing to the police, friends continued to drive around Flathead and surrounding areas, places that maybe he would have gone with these supposed friends from out of town. But Jordan didn't seem too concerned with locating him. The entire time they looked, she was busy texting and giggling at things online. When the police interviewed Jordan, the first thing they wanted to know was the basics about Cody and details of that weekend. One of the most informative pieces of evidence is the victim themselves, through their regular routine. Investigators will often ask about that, as well as the details of the day before they went missing. Were they acting differently around the time of their disappearance? Did anything out of the ordinary happen the day before? And as it turns out, July 7th was quite a significant day for them. Jordan and Cody attended the Sunday morning service at Faith Baptist Church. Cody's friends had asked him if he wanted to play some rounds of golf, but he couldn't. Jordan had a surprise planned for him. Jordan's stepfather, Steve, saw them again at the evening service. He'd heard about the surprise, too, and he asked what it was. Cody said it hadn't happened yet. After church was their regular routine of grabbing dinner and an ice cream cone at Dairy Queen. But while Jordan appeared happy on the outside, she was frantic on the inside. As she sat nodding and half paying attention to what everyone else was saying, she was texting Kimberly about still feeling so depressed in her new marriage. Kimberly suggested that maybe they seek counseling from their pastor. No problem was too big for God to handle, as long as their hearts were willing. Well, I'm going to talk to him about it tonight, she told her. I'll pray for you, Kimberly assured her. But dead serious, Jordan replied. If you don't hear from me, something happened. The first story Jordan told police, she said after church and dinner, they drove home. During that drive, Cody had gotten a call that made him upset, but he wouldn't tell her what it was about. When they got home, Jordan realized that she'd left her phone charger at a home of a babysitting client and drove there by herself to go get it. When she got back, Cody was getting into a car and leaving. She had no idea where he was going. They hadn't talked about it, he didn't text her, and unfortunately, Jordan didn't have much of anything to show police, as they both apparently deleted things off of their phones on a regular basis. But when the police confronted her with the story that she'd already told some of Cody's friends— Jordan changed her tune. Instead, she told them that around 8 p.m., the couple headed home and Jordan had finally worked up the courage to approach Cody about her true feelings. And at first, things had been fine, but eventually, it led into a heated argument, and he walked out of the house and into the garage. Jordan went to go check on him after a while, right as Cody was getting into a black car with a Washington license plate. Upset and not wanting to be alone, she invited her little brother over for a while, who eventually fell asleep on the couch. Jordan told Kimberly that it looked like Cody wasn't coming home that night, and her voicing her feelings had been a dumb idea, 
but it all amounted to nothing. And as the night went on into the early morning, Kimberly kept asking if Cody had arrived yet, but Jordan said she was angry. I really don't want anyone to talk to him today. It all happened so fast. It'll just backfire on me again. I'd rather wait and see if he shows up to work in the morning. As Jordan had been texting Kimberly about her marriage drama, she was also texting a 17-year-old fellow church member about rescheduling an event, which led to joking about each other's dance moves. Dude, you better work on those sweet moves, although you are pretty amazing already, Jordan told her around 11.05 p.m. Nah, my dance moves are superior, her friend replied. Whoa, 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 too far, homie, Jordan laughed, adding that they'd both kill it on the dance floor. Maybe Jordan didn't feel the need to cross that boundary with her and share what was happening in the moment, but her ability to compartmentalize made her text messages look like she was a totally different person depending on who she was talking to. If your husband was missing, wouldn't you want everyone to know and be on the lookout? By the second interview with police on July 9th, Sergeant Chad Zimmerman of the Kalispell Police told Jordan that he was having trouble with the consistencies in her answers and the different versions she'd told friends of Cody. I gotta tell you, I've been doing this for a long time, and I can pick up on things, and I feel like you're not being honest with me. But Jordan stuck to her story, this time including that Cody had always mentioned that if his friends came into town, he'd take them to specific spots. I got a message saying that he was going to go for a ride with some of his out-of-town buddies that were visiting. I have no idea who they were. But he always told me this one thing is when his friends came to visit, he would take them to Glacier Park. After 30 minutes, Jordan left the station and headed home. It had been days, and there was still no sign of Cody. And it seemed that his new wife was the person least concerned. An almost cinematic break in the case would arrive on Jordan's electronic doorstep the next day. In the early morning hours of the 10th, someone from carmantoni607 at gmail.com had contacted her. She went to the police station with her mother Lindy in tow, showing Detective Corey Clark the email on her phone. My name is Tony. There is no bother looking for Cody anymore. He is gone. I saw your post on Twitter and I thought I would email you. He'd come with some buddies and met up with me on Sunday night in Columbia Falls. He was saying he needed to be with his buddies for a bit and take them for a joy ride. Three of the guys came back saying that they'd gone for a ride in the woods somewhere and Cody got out of the car and went for a little hike and they are all positive he fell and he is dead, Jordan. I don't know who the guys were, but they took off. So call off the missing persons report. Cody is gone for sure. Tony. <sighs> Seems kind of sketchy, he said to Jordan asking her if she knew who Tony was, but she had no idea. You're pretty calm about the whole thing, he challenged but she said she just wasn't one to show emotions. She was hysterical on the ride over here, her mother added. But the detective's instincts had been right, as he'll later find out that Jordan had taken the time to tell a few friends about the email first, including Hannah, who basically had to pressure Jordan to take the email to the police. She wasn't in much of a rush. He walked out of the room for a minute, and Jordan sighed heavily. I just want to go home, she whined to her mother. Lindy patted her daughter on the back. I know you're just overwhelmed, she assured her, no doubt wanting to give anything to take her daughter's place. She'd had so many plans on giving advice to her about marriage, but being a widow at 22 wasn't one that she'd prepared for. They're just trying to cover all grounds, sweetie, she assured her. But Jordan didn't seem to have any interest in helping the police. She came across too bored and exhausted to be sad. After a little while, 
Another detective, Melissa Smith, came into the interview room and explained that she'd been talking to Detective Clark about some concerning inconsistencies, and she wanted to clarify a few things. After Jordan signed a piece of paper stating she'd been read her Miranda rights and agreed to talk to the police, Detective Smith asked her one more time what happened to Cody. Jordan repeated the same story, adding in that obviously something sinister happened out there with those buddies he'd taken off with. This email had proved that. They also asked Jordan if she'd be willing to let them go through her phone, and she agreed, warning them that she deleted all her messages at the end of every day, just like Cody did. On the evening of July 11th, friends and family would again try looking for Cody. This time, they'd venture further out into nature and look at the spots that Jordan had told police about. Jordan got into Cody's car, put on his sunglasses, and blasted music. Hannah, who was sitting in the passenger seat, couldn't help but notice how carefree and normal everything felt. If she didn't know any better, she would have thought it was any other day. Jordan wanted to hang posters in specific areas around Glacier National Park. She'd been sure that Cody would have gone there with those buddies, and she seemed to have an idea of what sites he would have wanted to show them. So much of the terrain is difficult, certainly not a spur-of-the-moment type of trek on a late Sunday night. But Jordan kept telling everyone that she just had a feeling. If what that Tony guy said was right, Jordan knew exactly where Cody would have brought them. There's an area called The Loop, which is actually just a one-way hike, named after a bend in the road around the end of it, near the west side of Logan Pass. It's a popular destination if you visit the park, as it gives you amazing views with every step. Jordan directed everyone towards a cliffside, protected by a small wall barrier. Stepping over and peering to what was a ravine and treetops, she said she spotted something. Getting views from different angles, Jordan was sure of it, that over 200 feet down on the ground was Cody. Jordan's little brother Michael began to cry, but Jordan was stoic as she walked away from the ledge and got back into the car. She rambled as they drove to Lake McDonald Lodge to call the police. Now that we've found him, we can call the detective and he can get out of my business, Jordan said, obviously concerned with the investigation more than the fact that she'd just found the body of her husband at the bottom of a cliff. Even the lodge manager had to do a double take when Jordan told her what they needed the park rangers dispatched for. Jordan appeared so calm, her demeanor didn't match the shock of her words. It was around 8.30 when the park ranger, Steve Powers, arrived to investigate and take statements. Speaking to Jordan, he had no hesitation bringing up the obvious red flag. Don't you think it's really odd that you were the one to randomly discover his body? But Jordan explained that the Holy Spirit had led her there. It was a place he wanted to see before he died, she told him. He would have come up here with friends to drive fast when they came to visit him from out of state. Around the time that Jordan was giving her statement to Steve Powers, Detective Corey Clark was out walking his dog, thinking of this current case and the probability of some random guy named Tony. Detective Clark and Jordan lived in the same neighborhood, and as he passed her house on the way home, he noticed a trash can out on the street. He took it home with him, dumping out the contents on his garage floor. Pieces of love letters and valentines, teddy bears, and a part of a wedding dress. He took photos, unsure if any of it was useful, packed it up and returned it, just as his phone rang. Authorities at the park headquarters had found his missing person. But until Cody's body was actually retrieved, there wasn't a lot more that could be done, so Jordan and her friends headed home. Jordan's friend Cheryl drove back, 
shaken and heartbroken. Even though it hadn't been 100% confirmed yet, everyone was sure now that Cody was dead. Unaware that she was driving over the speed limit, Jordan snapped her back to the present moment. Don't speed, this isn't my car. Oh, well, I guess now it is, she joked. Behind the scenes, police were also gathering statements from Cody and Jordan's friends. The second thoughts and regrets about her marriage and the hesitance about physical intimacy was a theme throughout all of her conversations that had to do with Cody. And on the very evening that Cody had apparently taken off with these nameless buddies, Jordan had told Kimberly that she was planning to talk to him about their issues. Dead serious, if you don't hear from me at all again tonight, something happened, she warned. Detective Clark couldn't help but feel that Jordan might have been setting the stage for this all along. Because from what he'd learned about Cody, he wasn't the type to pressure, to get violent, to argue, or even put up a fuss. Why would a guy who's newly married and head over heels skip town without a trace just because of some little fight? If anything, Cody sounded like the kind of guy who kept sticking around to make things work. The person Jordan was making Cody out to be was in stark contrast to everything else his friends and family said about him. And as for taking a walk alone on a cliffside, according to Cody's mother, he was terrified of heights, and the loop would have been the last place he would have chosen to go cool off. Nothing about this sat right with Detective Clark, but he also needed more. He needed to find out who Tony is. Getting to the location of the body was no easy feat. Once they got to the man, who was face down in the ravine, park officials positively identified Cody by the ID in his wallet. It was clear that whatever happened to him, Cody had indeed died from the cliffside fall. They took photographs, recorded the details of the scene, and airlifted his body out by helicopter. Cody's church would finally be able to hold a funeral service, having bittersweet closure to a search that felt like it spanned years, not just days. Jordan posted a photo to Instagram from their wedding with the caption, Miss you so much, Cody. Not a day will go by where I don't think of you. You will live on in my heart forever. I know you're in a better place looking down on me. You're my angel. I love you with all my heart and soul. See you again one day. And on her phone is where she'd spend most of the funeral, seeming apathetic and disinterested in the event. She also didn't speak one word to Cody's mother the entire service. These cold moments from Jordan would start to really sink in with the people around her. Sure, in the beginning, she might have been angry, and then confused when Cody had apparently taken off post-argument. Maybe she'd held off with blind faith during their waiting and searches, hoping for the best. But now everybody knew, without a doubt, that Cody was dead. Kimberly, who'd looked at Jordan like a sister, now looked at her and felt sick to her stomach. At first she thought her friend was just shocked but now she felt like her friend was relieved. This was the moment she decided she couldn't speak to her anymore. She didn't believe Jordan was a widow. She believed Jordan was a murderer. And Kimberly wasn't the only person with suspicions about Cody's death. The circumstances would cause the FBI to open up an investigation of their own, which would involve autopsy reports, reviewing security footage, and looking into these supposed buddies he'd driven off with. Jordan would be asked to come in on more than one occasion to continually answer questions as information would bubble to the surface, and one by one, the elements of her story were confronted. The first challenge would come in electronic form. The agent let Jordan rattle on with the same tales she'd told anyone and everyone. Then she told Jordan that her phone had been pinging in an area of the park that night, 
and slid a photograph across the table. On July 7th at 9.17 p.m., Cody and Jordan were both in his car, seen on security footage at the west entrance. She'd been with Cody the whole time, and she'd left the park alone. I think it's time to start telling the truth, Jordan. After a moment, clearly overwhelmed, Jordan explained that they'd gone there to talk things out. She'd been having second thoughts about being married so young and fast. But Cody wasn't having any of it, and they began to argue. When Jordan turned from the cliffside area they'd been fighting near, he grabbed her arm. And without thinking, she simultaneously shrugged him off and turned around to push him away. He lost his balance and fell off the cliff. And she'd predicted the whole thing, apparently. Jordan hadn't even wanted to go up on the mountain, but it had been Cody's idea. She thought it was dangerous. I didn't want to do that trail because I knew he could fall. And he said, I could do this with a blindfold on. I could just put it on, take a step, and I wouldn't even fall. And it kept going through my head. You're going to fall or something. And we kept arguing some more, and he grabbed my arm and jacket. So she reacted in a way without considering where they were. It was just instinct. Cody was standing right there. And then he wasn't. It had been just a split second. And then she was standing there, alone. She grabbed my arm and my jacket, and I said, no. I said, I'm not going to stop this. I'm going to defend myself. So I kind of let go, and I pushed, and he went over. And then I took off and went home. Bragging about a blind mountain hike was an interesting remark from a person apparently afraid of heights. And when questioned about their relationship issues, Jordan said that there weren't really any specific ones. It was just that she regretted getting married. At a time where she'd expected to be on cloud nine, she felt miserable, yet still insisting that they stay together because Cody was the person she was going to spend the rest of her life with. She'd made a vow and would stick to it. Jordan would also discover that the police had sent a subpoena to Google for information regarding Carman Tony 607. The email address had only been created on July 10th and was connected to an IP address that led them straight to the home of Steve Graham, Jordan's stepfather. Not only had Jordan lied to authorities about Cody's disappearance, she'd attempted to cover it up with an elaborate scheme reminiscent of some cheesy movie. It was then that Jordan finally broke down for the first time, showing the emotion that everyone had been waiting on for weeks. Faced with the reality that this wasn't going away, Jordan would step into the role of a victim of circumstance and abuse. Whether by judge or jury, Jordan's fate was no longer in her hands. A long-standing assumption when it comes to women who kill their spouses is that it's done in self-defense, usually in response to severe abuse and feeling as if there is absolutely no way out and no way to survive. It wouldn't be until the 1970s when the inside of a courtroom would begin a discussion around battered women's syndrome and the psychological effects of persistent abuse. Women who kill their partners are an under-examined area, given that they contribute such a low percentage when it comes to partner homicides. One 1989 study claimed that almost all, if not all, women who killed their partner did so in a situation of domestic abuse. But a Canadian study co-authored by a forensic psychiatrist at the Royal Ottawa Mental Health Centre in 2012 found that barely a quarter of women who killed their spouse were victims of abuse. They discovered that less than half of them suffered from any sort of identified psychological problem or had a history with crime, making it nearly impossible to predict the act itself. Even the societal cliché of a dangerous black widow isn't some church-going, virgin-esque young woman like Jordan Graham. But eventually everyone who knew her would pull away the layers of her disguise and begin to see that she checks all the boxes. 
as her face would be plastered all over every news outlet for weeks after her arrest. People would speculate how this loving young couple with their whole future ahead of them had found themselves here in just eight days. And why hadn't Jordan just been honest with everyone, with herself? But so many elements were at play beneath the surface of her happy grin. When she wanted something in life, she got it, even to her own detriment, and a dream wedding would be no different. She was certainly the more authoritative one in the relationship, but she would never be the one to publicly initiate a divorce. Maybe nobody was really happy, she'd tell herself. Maybe happiness would come later. And her religious beliefs made the choice simple. It came down to choosing between her devotion to God and the utter humiliation of divorce at 22 years old. Jordan didn't believe that she could choose both. The Institute for Family Studies looked into the connection between religious beliefs and divorce, finding that many were more afraid of the judgment and possible ostracization they'd face than staying in a miserable marriage. One man told them that it'd be better to seek acceptance from his religious community over robbing a bank than divorcing his wife. Not only was pushing Cody off the mountain a way to avoid both having to divorce him and having to remain married to him, but it could be seen as a horrible accident that happened to him and Jordan. People would feel so sorry for her. A tragic widow whose dreams were shattered so unfairly, so young. She could spend her whole life fooling everyone and deal with it later. But God wouldn't be the only one that Jordan would have to face for taking a life. As much as she prayed that the powers of justice in the human world wouldn't meddle with her plans, those prayers would go unanswered. Even though police had enough to arrest her as early as Cody's funeral, Jordan was officially charged with second-degree murder on September 9th. Like many narcissists who stubbornly stick to their lies until the facade is over, she didn't even flinch or show any sign of emotion until finally confronted with her own fate. Soon after, it was both a controversial move to the public and a painful move to the family when Judge Jeremiah Lynch released Jordan from custody and allowed her to remain on house arrest until her trial. This isn't the first time where a person accused of murder is given the luxury of awaiting trial from the comfort of their own home. The prosecution filed a motion attempting to fight this privilege, given the severity of the accusation. However, in the eyes of the judge, the defense was able to sufficiently prove that she wasn't a flight risk, nor a danger to the community. She would be required to wear an electronic monitoring device, undergo mental health evaluations, follow subsequent treatments, and remain at her parents' house. By October, a grand jury would add first-degree premeditation onto the charges, as well as her deception to the authorities. Jordan would face, at minimum, a sentence of life in prison. Given the attention the case was receiving, U.S. District Judge Donald Malloy would issue a gag order for both sides, and Jordan would be tried in Montana at the Missoula Federal Court beginning on December 9th. The prosecution planned to call at least 70 witnesses to the stand, including friends and family of both parties, law enforcement, and national park officials. U.S. Attorney Zeno Bacchus would have a hefty amount of evidence to show the court— if Jordan wanted to bring this to a jury, he was ready to play hardball. Cody's character, first and foremost, never fit the story Jordan gave to his friends and family. Cody's mother would tell the court that getting married to Jordan was the best day of his life, and he was so excited to start a family. I always wanted to be a grandmother, she said between tears. Where Cody was head over heels in love, Jordan was secretly doubting their relationship all the way to the altar. 
Kimberly would be one of the first to testify against her, and she would become one of the most important witnesses for the prosecution, because her conversations with Jordan implied an element of premeditation. The prosecution found it significant that Jordan would tell Kimberly of her worries, that she'd, quote, freak out if she was forced to do anything she didn't want to. And the last text that she'd sent before her and Cody headed to the park was now a foreboding message. But dead serious, if you don't hear from me at all again tonight, something happened. And Bacchus used these messages to show that Jordan had been planning for something to happen, already setting a stage for her lifetime movie ending. And of that fateful day, several witnesses, including Jordan's own stepfather, would recall Cody telling them that he couldn't hang out because Jordan had a surprise for him. At first, she'd told the FBI that it had been a barbecue with some friends, because Jordan hadn't come up with anything better yet. She'd hoped that she could somehow fool the people who knew Cody best with her lies. But Cody wasn't the type to skip town with friends. And what friends? All of his friends were here. That's when Jordan realized she needed to create a story to get the authorities off her trail. On the morning of July 10th, Jordan created a fake email and fake friends from her very own stepfather's home, which were wasted efforts. Jordan had naively assumed it would call off the search for Cody, unaware that there would be CCTV footage from the park entrance that she'd also have to explain away. Again, a desperate Jordan would finally reach for the last straw. A slight shrug, a mistake, an accident. How convenient. Not only did Jordan Graham murder Cody Johnson, but she did anything and everything to cover it up. Jordan couldn't help herself and tried to micromanage every step ahead of authorities, which had only gotten her caught faster. Her younger brother would also testify, as he'd been with her both on the night of Cody's disappearance and when she'd seemingly happened upon his body by instinct and luck. Just a teenager, he sobbed on the stand, clearly traumatized and marked by this forever, scarred by the grief of finding his brother-in-law dead and permanently changed by the horror that his own flesh and blood could be so cold and conniving. National Park staff and specialists would also testify about the substantial undertaking it had been to recover Cody. The task had included the collaboration between the Kalispell Police, National Park Service, the Flathead County Sheriff's Office, Parks Canada, and the FBI. Jordan had hoped that Cody would just end up a nameless nobody, a cold case tossed aside to rot away in a manila file folder somewhere. But instead, entire communities came together to metaphorically move heaven and hell and ship away at Jordan's lies, until all that was left was the ugly bare truth. The prosecution would rest their case, feeling confident that justice was on their side. As the sun set on the night of July 7th, the couple entered Glacier National Park in Cody's car. They drove around Lake McDonald and the 23 miles north until they got to the parking lot for the loop. They left their phones in the car since there's limited cell service. Jordan told authorities that during the final moments of Cody's life, the two of them were arguing. But the prosecution would paint a much more sinister picture. A black cloth that resembled what someone might use as a blindfold was found near Cody. In the eyes of the prosecution, this was reason enough to believe that Cody may have been blindfolded, and instead of arguing, just simply talking and going along with the surprise that Jordan had for him. But the defense would argue that the cloth had been handled improperly during the investigation, and there was no way to prove without a doubt that Cody had been wearing it at the time of his fall, 
Again, the prosecution brought it back to his personality. Why would Cody, who was terrified of heights, choose a cliffside of all places to pick a fight? He simply hadn't. This was no spur-of-the-moment argument. Jordan knew exactly what she'd planned to do when nobody else was looking. The prosecution described the utter terror and confusion that must have been going through Cody's head, those slow and agonizing seconds of that 200-foot fall. His body would impact boulder outcroppings first, before landing in a ravine. He had a seven-inch skull fracture, his legs were black and blue, almost all of his ribs were broken, and his heart was torn open. When his body was recovered, he wasn't wearing his wedding ring, and his shoes were found a short distance away. Specialists would testify that they believed Cody had fallen headfirst and had been pushed from behind. Cody's death had been full of fear, pain, and premeditated cruelty. And the aftermath had been full of deception and betrayal to their friends, family, and an entire community. Jordan had tried to use her outward appearance to get away with murder. But when it was defense attorney Michael Donahoe's turn to take the floor, he would portray Jordan as an innocent victim who'd just been acting instinctively in the heat of the moment. Jordan was sweet and young, barely a woman, and she hadn't been ready for marriage. Cody may not have been physically abusive, but the defense alleged that he controlled every movement and moment of Jordan's life. She never wanted to bring up her hesitations to him for fear it would set off his temper. Those text messages she sent to Kimberly had simply been a warning, because Jordan knew that when Cody found out she didn't want to be married to him anymore, he would lose it. It hadn't even been Jordan's fault that Cody fell. The defense would challenge the prosecution's theory, and also Jordan's confessions herself. She'd stated that Cody had been pushed with two hands, that she'd lost her wits about where they were and pushed him back in anger as a reaction to him grabbing her arm, and that'd been two separate actions. But in this version, Donahoe would explain that Jordan, being the calmer and bigger person, tried to remove herself from the heated argument. And when Cody grabbed her, she simply freed herself with one swift motion, causing him to lose his balance. Jordan hadn't been trying to hurt him. She'd been trying to protect herself. What came after that, the defense explained to the court, was just a terrified, well-meaning girl going through the motions as best she could. The authorities had twisted her words during the interrogations, manipulating her further away from her story and closer to their own version of the truth. Yes, Jordan had lied to authorities, but the intent wasn't to swerve their investigation. It was solely out of the fear that nobody would believe what happened up there on that mountain. If anything, creating the fake email showed that Jordan had a conscience and that she wanted Cody's body to be found and for his family to have the answers they needed. After just a few hours of testimony and sharing video clips of Cody and Jordan dancing at their wedding, the defense rested. After an hour recess, just before closing arguments, the defense team would return with a decision that shocked everyone. After just four days, Jordan would avoid her case going through a lengthy trial and accept a deal to plead guilty to second-degree murder. The deal would allow Jordan to circumvent being convicted of first-degree charges and also making false statements to law enforcement. Understandably surprised, Judge Malloy asked Jordan, Do you fully understand what you're doing here? In the next 15 minutes, you may be committing yourself to prison for the balance of your life. Jordan nodded, and with a soft crack in her voice, she would officially plead her guilt. Second-degree charges still carried the possibility of a maximum life sentence, along with a $250,000 maximum fine. 
As Jordan was being cuffed to leave the court, the judge warned her, You have told different stories to different people. I'm going to need you to tell me what happened on the night of July 7th. Jordan's sentencing hearing was set for March 27, 2014, and she would have months to think about her answer. In late March, the defense pleaded with the judge to consider her eventual cooperation with the authorities and her regret for not being honest sooner. She could have chosen a more cruel and cold outcome, leaving his body out there where it would have likely never been discovered, leaving his family with no closure. But she eventually came clean. Though she accepts responsibility for the recklessness of her act, Donahoe felt that given the circumstances of Cody's death being unintentional, she deserves a sentence somewhere in the range of 10 years. However, the prosecution would remind the judge that the games Jordan played were heartless, and nowhere, besides through the words of her defense attorney, did she ever display or communicate any regret or remorse for killing Cody. Her disregard for the law had wasted the efforts of law enforcement and caused the friends and family of the victim unnecessary and unbearable pain. Jordan's persona was nothing more than a tactic to hide the emptiness inside her. Through her actions, including the murder of Cody and conduct that followed, the defendant has demonstrated that she is extremely dangerous, predatory, and an unrepentant murderer. Bacchus suggested no less than 50 years in prison. After hearing the prosecution claim that the act was premeditated, Jordan would attempt to request a new trial, denying the original agreement. But even now, Jordan had no answers for why she did what she did. No answers for why she didn't make a different decision at any point when there were so many readily available to her. Not only was she void of remorse, she was void of any proof that she could have made a better choice if she was forced to choose today. And for Judge Malloy, that wasn't good enough. The original plea would stand. Jordan would be sentenced to 30 years in prison, followed by five years of supervision upon release, as well as 17000 in restitution fees. On her behalf, Jordan's defense would attempt to appeal for a shorter sentence in 2015, claiming that the original punishment was too extreme, holding time closer to a first-degree charge than a second. But Judge Malloy, who had the final say on the 50 years the prosecution was seeking, had chosen 30. The time for bartering had come and gone, and the appellate court upheld the decision. The defense would attempt to once again request a rehearing in 2016, which was also denied. Jordan remains in the Federal Correction Institution in Aliceville, Alabama. Even out of sight and behind bars, Jordan would still go on to represent a small hesitancy in everyone who'd known her. How there was always even just the slightest chance that you could never truly know someone, really know someone, and what they're capable of. Cody's friends and family would play events over and over in their minds, trying to find that moment that might have been a sign of things to come. But nobody could have predicted that someone he was so devoted to, someone he basically worshipped as much as God himself, could discard his life like it meant nothing to her. His best friend Jeremiah cried during one interview with the media, explaining the bittersweetness of realizing how much someone does for you, for everyone, because of their absence. You can never fully make sense of what feels so unfair. After Jordan was convicted and sentenced, the family could finally exhale the collective tension they'd been holding in. The Faith Baptist Church in Kalispell would hold a small memorial for Cody in April, just days before what would have been his 26th birthday. On a Sunday evening, 
Friends and family gather to share stories about him, support each other through their grief, and also celebrate his life. Nearly every story included Cody's love of adventure and his need for speed and fast cars. One friend joked, Whenever I got into a car with Cody at the wheel, I made sure that I was right with the man upstairs before we went anywhere. Once, after a baseball game, Cody was the only person who stayed with his friend Max, using the glow of their cell phones to find his missing keys in the field. It's the tiny, seemingly insignificant things that compile who a person is, that shape their absence once they're gone. It becomes apparent that time and time again, Cody was the kind of friend who showed up and stayed, who helped out whenever he could. The church would unveil a plaque with his photograph on it, dedicated to his honor, and the pastor handed out a booklet of Cody's favorite Bible verses. Every day, Jordan still lives out her broken fairy tale, both the bride and the widow, the martyr and the murderer, only giving way to the truth of what happened that day when she's alone in her bed, with nobody left to fool or impress. Having hoped her deception would get her far enough to remain untouched until she'd meet her maker, she now lives out the earthly penance for her sin, whispering confessional prayers to the ceiling between the echoes of inmates yelling and the clang of heavy steel, dreaming of shadowed valleys and sheer cliff sides, always running and running, but never able to escape herself.